Well, you can open your Bible to Mark's Gospel again. Be in verses one through verses fourteen and fifteen of chapter one, and verse seventeen of chapter two today. Reading Mark's Gospel is like going to watch a play on a great stage with a vast audience. The lights come down, the curtain goes up, the characters appear on the stage interacting, and the story moves forward to its climax. In the first 13 verses of Mark's Gospel, Mark, the one who has written this story, this play, he has taken us in these first 13 verses on a backstage tour before the curtain comes up. We have seen the performers preparing themselves We've met the stage manager, his name is John. He has prepared the stage, the way for the main character to perform. And John, the Baptist, and Mark together have let us see the main character before he even steps onto the stage. He's a Galilean peasant, Jesus of Nazareth. John tells us that he is the mighty one and that he is coming. John has laid the props in order on the stage He announces to the audience that the Mighty One is coming. He will bring to you the Spirit, he says. And then John steps aside. The curtain is about to rise. The main character is about to take center stage. And Mark decides that we will stay backstage to watch the action of the play. We'll watch all the action from here, from Mark's vantage point, behind the curtain, behind the stage. And that's what happens here in Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Let's read the first scene of Mark's dramatic play concerning Jesus, this peasant from Galilee. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Turn over to chapter 2, verse 17. We'll come around to this verse at the end this morning. When Jesus had heard the grumbling of the Pharisees, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. What is Mark's message here? What does he want us to see? Well, the first thing Mark wants us to see here is that Jesus is taking center stage. The curtain comes up. Jesus strides into Galilee, verse 14, preaching, proclaiming the gospel of God. Everything about what Mark tells us here shows that he regards this moment to be a moment heavy with significance. It's a profound moment in human history. It's actually the turning of the ages. Mark locates the decisive moment of his gospel here. And everything through the rest of the gospel is intended to lead us to respond to what Jesus proclaims here. What is Mark doing at this point? 
Well, let's think for just a moment about what has come before. John has preached that the Lord is coming. He will come after John, verse 7. He will bring the Spirit, verse 8. John has shown Jesus triumphant over the forces of evil, both the invisible spirit world triumphing triumphing over Satan. He has shown Jesus triumphant over the effects of God's curse upon this world, triumphant over the wild beasts in the wilderness that is barren because of God's curse. Jesus has come through his ordeal with the serpent, with the wild beasts. He has been faithful to God. God has given his angels charge over him. And now John has been imprisoned. The curtain rises and we see Christ proclaiming the good news of God. What is happening in this moment of dramatic change? Well, the first thing Mark wants us to know is that this is a dramatic change to the way that things were before the curtain arose. Let me show you how dramatic a change this is. Okay, look at verse 14. Mark doesn't give us many details about times or places in his gospel. But here in verse 14, he combines three major changes to the drama in one verse. First of all, there's a change of time from before John was arrested to now that John has been arrested. Secondly, there's a change of place. Everything to this point has been in the Jordan River in Judea, but now Jesus comes into Galilee. And third, there is a change of character from John the Baptist being on the center of the stage to now Jesus of Nazareth taking center stage. And that might not seem significant to you, but Mark intends that to be significant. And here are four reasons why. We know that Mark intends us to see this as a very significant moment because of four things. The first thing is that if you read John's gospel, you find out that John and Jesus overlapped. They actually ministered baptizing together in John's gospel, but not so in Mark. In Mark, there is a decisive turn from John to Jesus. It's John and then a change to Jesus. And Mark wants us to see this as a turning point from one to the other. Secondly, this is a significant moment in Mark's gospel because of the change of the characters from John to Jesus. John has occupied the first 13 verses, but now we see a change to Jesus as the main character, and that change is permanent all the way through the rest of Mark's gospel. This is the first moment when Jesus steps onto the stage as the central character, and it will continue that way to the very end. This is his first appearance in the gospel. Third, John has told us to look for one who comes after him. But Jesus comes twice in this introduction. First, in verse 9, he comes from Nazareth to be baptized. And second, in verse 14, he comes into Galilee preaching. Which one of these comings is the coming? John has said, the Lord is coming. Which of these two comings is the coming of the Lord? And the answer is, John said in verse 7, that he will come after me. 
And we find the answer to that in verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came. So verse 14 is the big moment. It's the coming of the Lord that Isaiah prophesied, that John foretold, that he prepared the way for. This is the big moment. This is the coming of the Lord in verse 14. And fourth, Mark uses a particular word at the beginning of verse 14 that we don't see in our English translations. Usually Mark joins his sentences together with a word that's usually translated and. Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and Jesus did this, and then Peter did this, and then Peter did this. That's not the word that Mark uses in verse 14. You see the word now in verse 14. It's a word that probably should be translated but. John was preaching. Jesus was baptized. But after John was arrested, Jesus came preaching. John's been preaching. Now he's arrested. But now Jesus enters the picture. He takes over and is the one who is preaching. So this is a huge turning point in Mark's gospel. And these actually, what we've seen so far here this morning, are only the initial clues that this is a big change. We'll see more of that as we go along. But the question we need to answer right now is, if this is such a dramatic turning point, a change in Mark's gospel, what is the change? What is changing? And the answer is that Jesus now comes, verse 14, proclaiming the good news of God. And so secondly, let's look at Jesus preaching. It is preaching with authority. Mark tells us in verse 14 that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. That is, he's preaching good news that God has sent him to proclaim. The good news comes from God and Jesus proclaims it. But the dominant note here in verse 14 and 15 This passage is heavy with authority. It's not just that Jesus is proclaiming and making speeches. It's that he is preaching with authority. And there are several places that we see that in verses 14 and 15. First, notice with me that Jesus' method of ministry is all about authority. Jesus comes preaching. The word preaching or proclaiming is the word that ancient Greek speakers would have used to describe the activity of a herald who came to announce the king's decree. He makes authoritative declarations on behalf of the king. In this case, Jesus announces and proclaims news that comes not from any earthly king. He is proclaiming the good news that comes from God. And so we can't ignore his message. It is a message that carries God's own authority behind it. And Jesus is the spokesman, the herald. Second, this message of good news that Jesus proclaims is all about authority. Not only is his method authoritative, his message is authoritative as well. Jesus tells us that the times have been fulfilled. As we will see, he is proclaiming that all that God has foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament is now coming about. God is now bringing it sovereignly to fulfillment. How is this happening? It's happening because, verse 15, 
God's kingdom is now at hand. God's kingdom has invaded this world. It takes a lot of authority to say all of God's promises are now being fulfilled. It takes the authority of God himself to say what God foretold is now being fulfilled. But that's exactly what Jesus says. The time has been fulfilled. God's promises are being fulfilled. And so his message is a message of authority. God's kingdom has dawned. God's reign is here. His authority is extended. It has intruded into this world. So Jesus' method and his message are all about authority. But thirdly, Jesus' message calls for a response. We must repent and believe in the gospel. This good news lays claim upon mankind. It is a, it is a message that demands a response. We must repent and believe. These are authoritative commands. They invade people's lives in demand that they alter the course of their life. Jesus is preaching here with authority. He's not offering tips on how to live a better life. He's not even telling people how they can obtain God's blessing. He isn't speaking to them certain, cert, certain timeless truths about how this world works. He isn't even teaching them about God. He isn't offering information. He is not expounding the scriptures to them. Instead, he is proclaiming an event. The time is fulfilled. God's kingdom has arrived. It is at hand. He's proclaiming good news. He's proclaiming the gospel, the good news. And good news is something you can write in the newspaper. It's an event. And that's what Jesus is proclaiming. He is proclaiming that God's kingdom has drawn near and he is commanding, he is demanding that the people who hear him repent and believe what he is saying. The Old Testament tells us that what Jesus is doing here in preaching is actually an exercise of authority. You remember we looked at Isaiah 61 several weeks ago. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to do what? To preach. Spirit anointed to preach. But we also looked at Isaiah 11 several weeks ago. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to rule, to reign, to exercise righteous judgments. The Lord is coming. He is anointed by the Spirit to do what? To preach. He is anointed by the Spirit to reign. And so Jesus preaching in the power of the Spirit is an exercise of his messianic authority. When he says God's reign has invaded this world, the first place we see that authority in place and being used, the first place we, th we see God's authority on display over the lives of human beings is in Jesus preaching. This passage is heavy with authority. And we see that Jesus preaches with authority. What is the message he proclaims with such authority? What has God sent him to say? We find it in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. We're told many times in Mark's gospel that he preaches, that Jesus preaches. But this is actually the only place in Mark's gospel where we find out what he says when he preaches. This is then the content in shortened, compressed 
summary form of the message that Jesus goes about all Galilee proclaiming. And the message breaks down into two sections. First, there is the announcement of two things that have happened, which really are one thing we will find. The time is fulfilled and God's kingdom is at hand. And then there are two responses that Jesus demands that his heroes give to this news. These two responses, repent and believe, correspond to the two events, the time being fulfilled and the kingdom of God drawing near. If the time has been fulfilled, then men must repent. If God's kingdom has arrived, then men must believe that good news. What is this message? What is this good news? Let's examine Jesus' sermon briefly together here. When Jesus says that the time has been fulfilled, we have to notice first of all that he's already told us what time it is. The time has been fulfilled. What time? Look at verse 14. It's the time after John was arrested. John is arrested. Jesus comes preaching. The time has been fulfilled. What is he saying? John has been arrested. Jesus has been anointed by the Spirit. He has begun preaching. And thus John's arrest, the end of John's ministry, and Jesus coming to center stage now in Galilee to proclaim these things, this beginning of Jesus' ministry, this, John's ministry to Jesus' ministry, is the decisive turning point. And Jesus says, at that point, the time has been fulfilled. In other words, John was the end of the old age, the last of the prophets to foretell the coming of God's salvation. Jesus is the beginning of a new age. What is true of this new age? The old age was an age of promise. What is the true of this age, of this time? And the answer is, it is a time of fulfillment. The time has been fulfilled. Jesus is the beginning of a new age of fulfillment. The Lord, whom the Old Testament had anticipated, is now here. The Lord has come. The Messiah, whom the Old Testament had foretold, has arrived. The seed of the woman that the Old Testament had looked forward to, who would crush the serpent, is now here. It is a new age, an age, a time of fulfillment. In other words, when Mark says that the time has been fulfilled, he's saying that all of those Old Testament expectations and promises and hopes and dreams, they're now all coming about. Jesus is fulfilling them. It is the age of fulfillment. With the coming of Jesus, the ages have taken a decisive turn from expectation and hope to fulfillment and reality. From the age of promise and expectation to the age of fulfillment and realization. What did the Old Testament expect? What had God promised? Well, let's look briefly at Isaiah 11. And we'll find it in summary form. If you would, turn back to Isaiah chapter 11. We looked at this passage two, three weeks ago. Maybe it was four weeks ago now. What did the Old Testament expect? What had God promised? At the beginning of this passage in verse 1, we encounter a branch, a shoot from the stump of Jesse. 
This branch, verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. He is anointed by God's Spirit. For what purpose? Verse 3, so that he may judge. Verse 3, so that he may decide disputes. Verse 4, so that he may strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Verse 4, so that he may kill the wicked. This sounds like a reign of terror. But actually, look at verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And, like a, ch- and a little child shall lead them. Verse 9. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What started off seemingly as a reign of terror is actually a reign of peace. Here is a world of peace and safety foretold. It is a world very different to our world today. But it's not a world that is unknown to our world today. Because this is the way that the world was in the very beginning, when God created the world all very good. In the beginning, before human sin invaded, the world was all very good. There was no hurting or destruction in all of God's holy mountain. The wolf and the lamb did lie lie down together. But ever since man went his own way, we have been experiencing the terrifying reign of sin and death. The human heart has manufactured every kind of evil imaginable, and we live in a world of pain and misery and destruction and death. But here, here is a prophecy of the reversal of all of that. How will it come about? The reign of a king who drives out unrighteousness, who slays the wicked. That is what it will take to bring this earth to peace. It will take the destruction of evil and all evildoers. It will take a terrifying reign of righteousness. The total destruction of the wicked and their wickedness. But when that is accomplished, what a paradise it will be. This is the reign of the branch upon whom rests the Spirit of the Lord. But who is this branch? This branch is more than a mere human being. Look at chapter 12, verse 1. In that day, you will say. What day? The day of the reign of the branch. In that day. What will happen in that day? Verse 4. You will give thanks to the Lord. Why give thanks to the Lord in that day? Why not give thanks to the branch? You will call upon His name, verse 4, 12, 4. You will make known His deeds among the peoples. You will proclaim that His name is exalted. Who is the high one? Who is the mighty one? Who is the king? Who is the branch? It is the Lord Himself who has come to reign. His reign, when it comes, will exterminate evil and all evildoers. When God comes to reign over this earth, it will be paradise. It will be salvation. It will be peace. God's reign will reverse the curse of Eden. It will be the turning point of the ages when God's reign arrives. 
When God appears on earth to reign, the news of his arrival will be good news to this planet, tired of the reign of sin and pain and death. And that's what Jesus says in Mark 1 is here now. The time is fulfilled. God's reign is at hand. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 1 and read that again. All of the expectations. Now, Jesus comes preaching fulfillment. God's reign is here. It is at hand. The kingdom of God is here upon earth. It has intruded into this world. How is God's kingdom here now? What has changed? Here's the really shocking thing to realize. Remember John's preaching? Repent, because after me comes the mighty one. Jesus, too, in verse 15, preaches repentance. I'm sorry. John's preaching repentance because after me a mighty one is coming. John's message, then, is a message of expectation. It fits with the entire Old Testament. Expectation. He is still yet to come. Jesus comes also preaching repentance, verse 15. But what has changed is that that expectation has now become fulfillment. That expectation and promise has now become, it's here. God's reign has arrived. It has now become real. What John expected is now being realized. The kingdom is right here upon earth. Why? Because Jesus has come into Galilee preaching. God's kingdom is here. Jesus is preaching. Jesus is the king. He has come. And with him, he has brought to earth God's reign. God's kingdom is at hand. But this is not the first time we've seen Jesus in Mark's gospel. He's been here for a lot longer than verse 14. He was here in verse 9. Why is this the decisive moment? When Jesus has been here before this. What makes this moment the decisive moment? And the answer is, he was here, yes, being baptized, walking from Galilee to Jordan. He was here, but he was not proclaiming. But now John has been cast into prison, and Jesus comes proclaiming and says, now is the time of fulfillment. Now the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here because the king is preaching. His preaching is his reign. His pulpit is his throne. God's reign has invaded this world and it is moving forward now under the proclamation of Jesus Christ to push back the curse, to renovate this world, to bring peace and joy and blessing as Jesus preaches. The kingdom is like an invading army. It has landed in this world. It has established a beachhead. And in Galilee, a peasant carpenter, Jesus of Nazareth, is preaching. God's kingdom has dawned. This is good news for the world that has laid for so long under the reign of God's curse. The oppressive reign of human rebellion and sin and death. But now all of that is changing. God's reign has arrived. So what does that mean for us? How must we respond? 
such a profound change in world history. A turning point that the world has waited for now for 4,000 years since the garden. Since the promise that the seed would come to crush the head of the serpent. For 4,000 years there has been expectation. And now Jesus says the time is fulfilled. It's a dramatic change in world history. And such a dramatic change has got to mean something is going to change about my world. What must change? And the answer is, you, you must change, Jesus says. Jesus proclaims the good news and demands that you repent and believe the good news. You must change your allegiance. You must change your mind and attitude toward God and His Lordship. Repentance is required because the times have changed. You must change because the times have changed. God is reigning. You must switch your allegiance. Evil is no longer the dominant reigning king in this world. You must stop participating in it. You must stop loving it. Instead, you must turn. You must repent. You must trust God's words about this kingdom. In short, you must hear Jesus preaching. And you must count His words and promises about the kingdom to be true, even if everything else makes it look like they are not. And what this looks like to repent and believe is actually what Mark's gospel is going to fill out for us. We've got 15 chapters now to tell us what it means to repent and believe. But we get a brief window into what it means to repent and believe if you look with me at chapter 2, verse 17. We need to notice who Jesus directs this message to. Who does he call to repent? Who does he call to believe? Who has he come to preach these things to? We noted last week that the way Mark constructs this first section of his gospel, he intends us to understand chapter 1, verse 14 through 15 with chapter 2, verse 17. They go together. You remember that, all the colors on our handout last week. So we're not out of place to turn to chapter 2, verse 17 now. Mark wants us to. But before we read what Jesus says here in chapter 2, verse 17, we need to note several things, okay? Let's look at 1.14 again, chapter 1, verse 14. Jesus came proclaiming. Jesus came proclaiming. Look at chapter 1, verse 39. I'm sorry, verse 38. Let us go to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came. Same words. Jesus came to preach. Jesus came preaching. Why did he come? To preach. He says not to heal. I came to preach. I came to preach. So coming, his coming and his preaching go together. So when we read chapter 2 verse 17, we have a slightly different word. I came, same word as 114. Same word as 139. Why did he come? To preach. No, chapter 2, verse 17, he came to call. I came to call, not the righteous, but sinners. Instead of preaching, we have calling. Jesus came to call. And Mark Mark wants us then to understand calling 
as what Jesus was doing when he called us to respond to the good news. He's proclaiming these events and then he's concluding that by calling for repentance, calling for faith. And so this calling is part of his preaching. He came to call. Calling is what Jesus does to sinners who hear the good news. He calls them to repent and believe. And so that helps us understand something about what it means to repent and believe. If you're calling sinners to repent, what does it mean to repent? What sort of change? Live in a different house? What sort of repentance is called for? Does it mean move to a different city? What is this repentance, this change? It is a change that Christ calls sinners to undertake. It's not the righteous, but the sinners he called to repent. And this gives us an idea then about what it means to be part of this kingdom. How do you repent and believe the gospel? It tells us how we must respond to this good news that God's reign has arrived. It's sinners who must respond to this news. And that means that their repentance is a repenting from sin. It's turning from sin. What is believing then? Look at chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus passed by. He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him. We'll notice next week that what Jesus says to Levi, he also said to the four along the Sea of Galilee. And to those four, Mark says, he called them. So when Jesus says to Levi, follow me, he is calling a sinner to repent. So what does it mean to repent? What does it mean to believe? It means to follow Jesus Christ. Here is repentance and faith then. It's doing what Levi did. And that means then, this is just a little introduction for next week, if you turn back now to chapter 1, next week we will look at verses 16 through 20, the call of these four disciples to be fishers of men. I think we commonly think of this as Jesus Christ calling them to serve him. But that's not what Jesus is doing here. He is calling sinners to repent. He is calling these four to salvation, not to service. And that means that the call of Levi in chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, is also a call to salvation. It is a call to repentance, to believing. It is a call to become a part of the kingdom. And we'll look at that next week. So what does this all mean for us? Jesus is not preaching these words to us today. He did this in Galilee after John was arrested. I think there's three things this means for us. First of all, we must proclaim the kingdom. We must proclaim the kingdom. There's a lot of confusion today about what the kingdom of God is. Is healing diseases part of the kingdom? The Pentecostals would have us believe that it is. What about digging wells in the desert for thirsty people? Is that 
part of God's kingdom is that kingdom work. Do we build the kingdom of God? You hear that language a lot today. Do we advance the kingdom? Does God call his people to advance the kingdom, to move it forwards? The New Testament never uses the following words to talk to us about our part in the kingdom. It never says that we build the kingdom. It never says that we are called to establish the kingdom. It never says we are called to advance the kingdom. It never says that we are called to bring the kingdom in. It never even says we are called to do kingdom work. Never. What it does say is that we are called to proclaim the kingdom. God's reign is his work alone. And he extends that reign through our proclamation. Philip preached the good news of the kingdom, Acts 8.12. Paul proclaimed the good news of the kingdom, Acts 28.31. Never are we told to do anything for the kingdom but to open our mouths and to proclaim that God's kingdom is here. We are to call men to submit to God's reign, to call them to believe, to call them to repent. That is kingdom work. We use our mouths, proclaiming God's reign. Preaching the kingdom, the good news, the gospel that Jesus does here is making an authoritative declaration that God's reign has broken into our world. It's calling people to recognize the times that a new ruler sits upon the throne. It's calling sinners to repent and believe this good news. It's calling them to submit themselves to the king lest he come and destroy them. His reign is already underway, is our message. God will foreclose upon this world any day. The evidence that this conquest is underway is what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the decisive moment of victory. It is a documented historical fact that Jesus rose up from the dead. He smashed the bands of death. He rose up to live again. He ascended up into the heavens. He lives there now, reigning upon the throne. He is coming again to finish his conquest of the world. This is the good news. And men must repent and believe it. Preaching the gospel is not giving your testimony. It is announcing God's reign in Jesus Christ and calling men to submit to it, to believe. The good news. This is our mission, to make disciples of the king, to teach them to observe all that he has commanded. It is our mission. It is to this mission that we channel our prayers and our money and our time and our attention the kinds of missionaries we want to support, the kind of budget we want to have in this church, majors on proclaiming God's kingdom and his reign, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ, proclaiming the cross as God's means of obtaining human salvation. Not healing, not works of charity, not soup kitchens or homeless projects. First of all, Though we who have submitted ourselves to the kingdom look out upon this world with humility and compassion just as Jesus did. But that is not the primary way that the kingdom is at work today. The 
primary way is through the proclamation of God's reign, the cross, the resurrection, forgiveness of sins, and calling men to submit to this king who has invaded our world. This is kingdom work. The second thing that this means for us is that life in this kingdom is a matter of living by faith. If you are a citizen of this kingdom, you must live every day by faith. Where is God's rule today? It doesn't appear that he's reigning. It does not appear that much is different than before Jesus came. In fact, God's kingdom seems invisible, if not absent today. You didn't see the resurrection. I didn't either. We didn't see God enthrone his son on the throne in heaven after he returned to heaven. All we have is a report, news, that it happened. We have words of the apostles that he rose, that he went up into heaven. God has told us through their pens that he is reigning, that he is coming again to rule this world, but that's all we've got. We only have words telling us that we will be forgiven of sins if we repent. And that actually is a huge problem for us, for this world today, because Entering into this kingdom requires repenting. And that's a huge cost to turn away from everything in this world. If all of these reports and promises are not true, repentance means a great loss for believers because this world does look like it is a lot of fun. It seems that the wicked thrive and prosper. It seems that those who disregard in his way, God and his ways seem to do just fine in this world. And to make this point that much sharper, look at chapter 1, verse 14. While Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom, where is John? In prison. That's been the result for many followers of Jesus throughout the ages. Where is God's rule when his messenger is in prison? Is God the king or what? Or is Herod king? Where is God's reign of justice when the wicked prosper? Is it even worth it to go on repenting and believing these reports? Is it worth it to follow Jesus? Is the kingdom really here today or not? Or do sinners reign over this world? And that's actually a question that everyone in Mark's gospel has to grapple with. We will find the crowds, the religious leaders, even Peter and the disciples grappling with this question that Jesus proclaims the kingdom. He says it is here, but it certainly doesn't look like it. And in the end, Jesus himself, this great king, will be crucified at the hands of men. So who is the king? Is the kingdom even here? The Old Testament promises such as Isaiah 11 that we looked at earlier seem very much different than the world we live in today. They foretold the end times, eschatology, what will happen in the future. But Jesus says that time is now. 
What Isaiah said would come in the future, Jesus says, is being fulfilled now. God's reign is at hand. We are living in the end times then. But the strange thing is that he has come to preach and not to heal today. He came to proclaim and not to deliver from the Romans. He's come to call sinners to repentance, not to bring political deliverance. And in the end, he faces death at the hands of sinners. It seems that he came not to overthrow human sin and death then because our world is still filled with cemeteries. Where is God's reign today? Is the kingdom now? Or are we still waiting for it? Is it here already? Or is it not yet here? And the answer that we will find in Mark's gospel is that it's both. This is the age of fulfillment. And yet, it's not yet fulfilled. This is why Jesus calls his followers to believe the good news. Life in the kingdom today is a matter of faith. The life of kingdom citizens, followers of Jesus, is a life of faith. Why? Because Jesus has proclaimed the kingdom, that it's here. But so far it only seems to be words. All that the prophets foretold, we don't see it today, do we? You see lions and lambs lying down together. The kingdom is here, but not yet. The time is fulfilled, but it will yet be fulfilled. In other words, we live between the times. We live at the turning point of all of human history. We live in the already here, but in the not yet here. The kingdom coexists in this age alongside suffering and oppression and sin and death. And even our own salvation is completed, but not yet. We are redeemed, but not yet. We are sanctified, but not yet. We are justified, but we have not yet been raised from the dead. Our condemnation to death has not been made, our our deliverance from condemnation to death has not yet been made apparent. And if Jesus Christ tarries, we will all succumb to the same fate of every sinner upon this earth. We will be buried in a coffin. Is our salvation complete? Is God's kingdom here? Yes, it is, but no, it is not. And so that means that living as a kingdom citizen today is profoundly a matter of faith. Faith in the reports. Faith in the proclamation of Jesus' words. Faith in the preaching. It is a matter of believing the promises and living under God's present reign even though we can't see it fulfilled finally yet. It is a matter of repenting today. It is a matter of denying yourself today. It is a matter of losing your life today that you may gain it tomorrow. And the fact that you will gain it tomorrow depends upon whether or not God will actually bring the promises to fulfillment. The kingdom is here, but not yet. And so Jesus calls us to embrace the good news of its dawn by faith. The life of repentance and faith is the pathway into the kingdom, but a life of ongoing repentance and faith is the pathway to the full sunrise of the kingdom in all of its glory. And so Mark's gospel calls us to follow Christ in ongoing repentance and faith. Continue to believe the reports you hear. Believe these words. Deny yourself and you 
shall gain the whole world. That's Jesus' message to us. The third thing that this means for us is that sinners must repent and believe the good news. This message is for sinners. We saw in 2.17, Jesus came to call sinners. Not to leave them where they are, but to call them to enter in under his reign and rule, to bring them the good news as we will find that this king who reigns, reigns with a reign of forgiveness of sin. It's good news that God reigns if you are a repentant sinner. And entering the kingdom is a matter of responding to Jesus. Jesus calls, we respond. God intrudes, we submit. God takes the initiative to bring the kingdom to us. And we repent and enter in by faith. And so if you're a sinner today, whether an unrepentant sinner or whether a continuing to repent sinner? The answer is that we must repent. We must believe the good news. It must be a life of repentance and faith all the way until we enter into our eternal reward. It will cost you everything to repent, but repentance is not the end. We must believe also. And faith is something that we give. It is a decision to trust. And that trust affects my actions. And that's why the life of the kingdom citizen is a life of faith. First, and then a life of good works. Lord God, thank you for giving us Jesus Christ to proclaim to us your reign. Grant us humility and faith to receive this announcement of the kingdom. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us this week to deny ourselves, to take up our cross in this age and to follow him down into death and up into glory. And teach us that now as we observe the Lord's Supper. And we ask these things in Christ's name.